Hi, listeners. I'm Paulina Velasco. I'm the editor of a new series from LWC Studios. It's called 100 Latina Birthdays. It's an original documentary podcast that investigates the health and lifetime outcomes of Latinas in the U.S. In the first season, 10 episodes, one out each week, we tell the stories of Latinas going through different milestones in the first 20 years of their life. So we have perinatal health stories, babies, toddlers. We talk to families with Latina girls. They talk about nutrition and sports. We talk with teens about adolescence and growing up. And we get stories from Latinas in the first couple years of college. But the context and implications are all nationwide. If you're Latina, you know or love a Latina, you're curious about the questions we're asking ourselves, the hurdles we're experiencing, how we're growing up and taking care of our physical and mental health in this, the United States, navigate to our feed, 100 Latina Birthdays, wherever you listen to this show, or go to our website, 100latinabirthdays.com. Here's this episode. Enjoy. By 2050, Latinas will make up a quarter of all women in the U.S., we're gaining an education, participating in the labor market, accumulating wealth, and embracing entrepreneurship. The future of the United States is irrevocably tied to the health and well-being of Latinas. I'm Andrea Flores, a journalist based in the Chicagoland area, but more specifically, Waukegan, where I was born and raised, and where this episode takes place. Waukegan is nestled between some of the country's wealthiest towns. Think where Home Alone and Ferris Bueller's Day Off were filmed. But Waukegan is one of the poorest cities in Illinois. More than half of the city identifies as Latino. And while the majority of the population is Mexican, there are also Hondurans, Salvadorans, Puerto Ricans, Belizeans, and other Latinos. The Latino community is thriving in Waukegan. And the clearest way to figure out where someone is from, without being too intrusive, is by listening to how they speak Spanish. Regional accent colloquialisms, slang, and intonation all play a part in how native speakers adapt to and evolve their language. That may be why, for Wendy Miralda and Jose Paz, talking in Spanish to their infant daughter has invited a lot of questions, many shared by Latinos around the country when deciding to raise their children bilingual. No me quiero bañar, no me quiero bañar. Wendy is preparing her baby girl Jeliani for bed. Their nighttime routine includes bath time with toys and a song about avoiding showers and preferring a more stinky alternative. So she likes that song because when she was a baby, she did not like to shower. 27-year-old Wendy Jahaira Miralda and 28-year-old Jose Paz are navigating the early stages of parenthood with their nine-month-old daughter, Jeliani Dora. When I visited them, I was captivated by Jeliani's big eyes. Wendy thinks Jeliani got Jose's big eyes and thin eyebrows. But as I look at Wendy, I actually think Jeliani looks more like her, with her plump cheeks and twinkling eyes. Over the last nine months, the couple has worked to build bonds with her daughter. Wendy, in particular, has found it helpful to bond with Jeliani during bath time. Like, at first, I would bathe her. So that was interesting at first, because I was saying that I didn't know how to bathe the baby. But then I started, like, incorporating toys, singing to her, dancing with her while she was bathing. I like to read to her at night, and 
Like at first, like obviously she just gives me that blank stare, has no clue. But lately, now that she's a little older, you can see she smiles. Or when I bring out a book, like you can see this, her her face just glows up. So I, I think she likes it. I hope she does. No más. According to the Centers for Disease Control, activities such as speaking, playing, and caring for a child support healthy brain growth. These activities enhance cognitive development, basically how children think and problem solve. We like to, what else do you like? I like to, she likes to play on the floor. Sometimes she likes to play by herself. And sometimes simply by like me or dad, like just sitting there, she likes that. She does not like to be alone. She loves to go to the kitchen when I'm in the kitchen. So sometimes I like pull out all the Tupperware and all that stuff so she can just play because that's what she's going to do and end up doing anyway, so. Clifford va de viaje. Hola, me llamo Emilia Isabel. Hoy es un día feliz para mí. Hoy es el último día de clases. Llegaron las vacaciones. Ahora puedo jugar con mi perro Clifford. Bonding through reading and bath time are crucial to an infant's well-being. Research shows that a critical stage for brain development actually starts in the womb and then throughout the first year of life. During this stage, babies want to be loved and cared for. These small, meaningful interactions set the foundation for children to become resilient and independent adults. By developing a secure attachment with Giuliani, Wendy and Jose are setting the groundwork for their daughter to develop a strong sense of self and positive social skills. The science shows that interactions between adults and babies, whether it be babbling, facial expressions, and gestures, can actually strengthen an infant's brain. Responding to nonverbal cues such as babbling or crying validates the baby's experiences. Talking is a milestone infants tend to hit after their first birthday. So it'll be a while before Giuliani forms words and sentences, but her brain is constantly absorbing information all around her. Infant brains are just amazing. That's Adriana Weisletter, a Northwestern University professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. She is also the director of the Child Language Lab. You know, now that I have a little one and she's three months old and I just like am looking at her all the time and thinking of all the things that she's learning. It's so amazing to think about. Adriana's lab focuses on how babies, toddlers and preschool children learn to communicate from their environments. What's happening in the first year is that infants' brains are kind of, they're growing, they're forming connections. As early as three months, infants are able to understand language patterns and categories. It's similar to how a bear cub is learning to differentiate between edible and poisonous berries, not by trying them, but rather observing the mother. In that same way, infants are learning to categorize objects, like the difference between a dog and a tree or apple and car. They might not be able to tell the difference between a cat and a dog, but they know they share similar characteristics to form the category of animal. In other words, they are learning how to recognize differences and similarities. They're specializing to the environments that they're in. So one of the most amazing things about, you know, about humans, about babies is that they're very, very, very adaptable. And so, you know, babies are born with a lot of kind of early capacities. 
As they discussed what language to use around Geliani, her Honduran parents found the decision easy to make. You might hear Geliani trying to get a word or two in here. Well, it's a conversation we did have because that way the baby understands more about where my parents come from, my wife's parents. So more for the baby to feel part of the family, know what I mean? So that she's not lost more than anything. For the Paz family, passing down Spanish is central to Geliani understanding de dónde viene, where she comes from. For Wendy, teaching Geliani Spanish is synonymous with raising her to be Honduran. So I am Honduran. I was born here. My parents are Honduran. My husband's fully Honduran. He was born in Honduras. So that's, uh, I'm very big on that as far as culture. Like, I'm proud to say that I'm Honduran, Um, especially because there's just, it's like a minority here. Waukegan, Illinois, is 45 minutes north of Chicago. According to the 2020 census, almost 60% of the Waukegan population identifies as Latino. So it's always interesting when you tell people, oh, you're Honduran, and it's like, oh, you're Honduran, you're not Mexican, which is usually what people think of when they see a Hispanic. Hondurans in Waukegan make up roughly 4% of the total Latino population. So that's very big and important for me for her to know that she is Honduran and to speak Spanish and, like, just follow our traditions and stuff and just continue them. Growing up in Waukegan myself, I had to learn that not everyone was Mexican like my family. You know, I came in, and the way that you were talking to your daughter, for me, it's, like, it's different. Yes. So I think Mexicans say ven, right? We say veni. So I'll say veni, veni. Wendy recalls a recent visit to a local Mexican breakfast spot where she asked the waiter for sour cream, which in Honduras is called mantequilla. But mantequilla in Mexico is butter. So he came and brought me butter, and my, bro- and my brother's like, you dummy, he's like, that's not, he's like, that's not what they call it. And I'm like, oh my God. So I think she's going to struggle with that. Will Geliani struggle with words like mantequilla? How do we even know what is happening in her brain when she can't speak? In her research, Adriana found that when parents direct their speech to their children, they are more likely to develop greater vocabularies. In other words, talking to your child, even if they don't talk back, matters, even more than screen time. Because early on, you know, we we kind of don't think a lot about language and the people, you know, sometimes don't think a lot about language until kids start to talk. But they have to learn a lot of things before they can actually talk and say those first words. Adriana's research uses something called eye tracking, which follows infants' eye movements relative to the words and images they are exposed to. I came to check it out for myself at the Northwestern University lab. We track babies' like eye movements to see sort of where they look, so Mm -hmm. this is kind of how we do it. The children in Adriana's study will typically sit on their parents' lap. The eye tracking device looks sort of like a Wii sensor bar, thin and rectangular, except it's black and fits exactly across the bottom of a laptop. When Adriana connects the eye tracker to the laptop, two white eyes appear on the screen. See, do you see those little, those are my eyes. Do you see that? Whoa. (laughs) See? Oh my. Adriana let me sit in front of the eye tracker. Before the test can begin, the eye tracker needs to calibrate with my eyes. Adriana runs a calibration test with duck images. The tracker will start to understand where my eyes will be looking at the screen. 
Those are duck sounds playing as duck images appear on the screen. You might hear some feedback given all the electronics in the room. It's creating like a model of your eyes. After the eye tracker senses where my eyes are located, the actual testing begins. Adriana sits in another corner of the room and draws a curtain for privacy. She's the only one that can see the white eyes moving. And so the test begins with someone on the screen saying, Hi friends, I have some things I want to show you. I'm going to show you some of my things. Are you ready? Two images pop up on the screen, but only one object is mentioned at a time. Where's the dog? Do you see it? Look at the doll. Do you like it? Where's the hand? Do you see it? Adriana runs the test in Spanish as well. Hola amigos. Tengo unas cosas que les quiero mostrar. Les voy a mostrar algunas de mis cosas. ¿Están listos? Mi naranja. Y mi jugo. Y mi nariz. Y mi juguete. In some cases, it might be hard for children to distinguish between words that sound similar, like dog and doll. But if dog and hand are paired together, it might be faster for children to identify. This shows us that they're kind of using the sounds even before the end of the word. The point of this test is to answer one simple question. Where are children looking at when they hear the name of an object? Currently, this test is meant for two to three-and-a-half-year-olds. A similar test can be conducted with infants as young as six months. You can kind of tell a little bit about what they're thinking. You know, we try to sort of read their minds based on where they look. Adriana hopes that her research can inform future pediatric practices, especially when it comes to bilingual families. For bilingual kids or kids from bilingual backgrounds or Spanish-speaking backgrounds or just Pediatricians don't always know how to answer parents' questions because we know less about their development and pediatricians don't get training always on bilingualism. And so that's one of the gaps that we're trying to bridge. Hi, mamas! <laughs> when I enter the bus home, Giuliani's eyes look straight at me. And whenever I look at her and talk, her eyes remain laser-focused on me as she cracks a toothless smile. Despite not having an eye tracker in the room with the Bas family, I couldn't help but notice whenever Wendy would look at her daughter and speak to her, Giuliani's eyes would lock onto her mother's eyes and light up as well. Hola, Desi. Hola. Vení. Jose swears he heard Giuliani say tata once, which is the closest he's gotten to hearing the word papa. So he says he's been saying it back to her in an effort to hear it again. He also calls her nani for Deliani. Pues ella cuando estaba más, ella dijo tata, sí, nada más. Entonces de ahí nada más le, yo le empecé a decir tata, le digo nani. At the nine-month mark, most infants react to their name being called and even start to babble words like dada or tata in Deliani's case. Tata, tata, tata. And Geliani already understands the word for bottle. For bottle, we say Pepe. And it's funny because like my, my closer Mexican friends are like, no, it's Mamila, Mamila. But we call it Pepe. So I can hear her sometimes like utter words, like, you know, trying to say it. And we like, when we say, oh, Pepe, Pepe's here, or Pepe, el Pepe. So she knows, I think she knows that. Like she sees it and like, especially when she's hungry, like she'll grab onto it and she knows what we're talking about. 
Adriana says knowing what different words mean to different people and communities pushes our brains to think and consider other cultures and contexts. If I call it like mantequilla and I mean sour cream because they call it something different. And so it's actually sort of showing kids something that is an important skill, cognitive skill to develop. So see, it's a cool thing. As a Costa Rican living in the United States Mexican majority, Adriana has also adjusted to learning new words in Spanish. When you have to think about those things like, oh, like my family calls it this, but other people outside call it this. It's like you're forced to learn this meta thing about language, which is like, oh, things can have different names. And so bilingual kids, there's some research to suggest are developing like these perspective taking skills. It's something that bilingual kids early on develop more quickly that's called metalinguistic awareness. When I was growing up, I remember my mom being worried that she was confusing my siblings and me by speaking Spanish at home. But she really didn't have a choice since it was the only language she could speak at the time. Parents often hear myths that exposing children to more than one language in the household will confuse a child or cause developmental and speech delays. But the research says otherwise. A lot of times I know parents can hear a lot of messages that are kind of a little bit around fear of like, you know, what if it, they'll be confused or it'll be harder for them to learn English later or this, but the science just doesn't support that at all. I want that to be sort of like one of the things, you know, it's like, there's it's been debunked, you know, there's no confusion. There's lots of parts of the world where bilingualism is like the normal, you know, and it's like weird if you're not. 43% of the world's population is bilingual. In the U.S., one in five adults is bilingual, compared to the European Union, where it's three in five adults. Adriana's research supports the idea that infants have the capacity to learn two languages at the same time. It's what we mean when we say infants are global citizens, because their brains are able to process multiple languages they are regularly exposed to, while adults might struggle to reach that same level of fluency. One of the things that we don't realize is that as adults, our brains are all, have already kind of, if you're sort of born in a monolingual environment, right, in a single language environment, then your brain has kind of already adapted to that environment to some extent. And so learning a second language as an adult can be harder. But for babies, the world is kind of wide open. So babies that are born into a dual language environment or a multilingual environment, their brains are adapting and specializing to that environment, to all of the sounds that they hear in that environment and to kind of the communicative needs of that environment. Wendy isn't so afraid of Giuliani being confused by two languages as much as the fear that she's not teaching her proper Spanish. Wendy feels scared that she might pass on words that aren't fully correct. My older brother, he's probably better in Spanish. I'm sure he's better in Spanish than me. So sometimes like, I'll say words that are incorrect or words that aren't even words. And then he'll say, that's not like parqueadero. I think that's not a word. And people use it. But according to Adriana's research, while Wendy might sprinkle in the occasional English word, it won't impact Geliani as much as Wendy thinks it will. Geliani's brain will come to understand the difference between two languages and adapt to her unique environment. Like they have the capacity to learn the language and communication. They need to adapt to the environment that they're in, right? So if you are born into an environment that speaks 
one language or another language, you have to learn somewhat different things. And the amazing thing that, you know, we do is that we really kind of adapt to those environments. For Wendy, it is important that Jeliani learn both languages to enhance future career opportunities. According to a 2017 report by the New American Economy, the number of online job listings for bilingual Spanish-English speakers more than doubled from 2010 to 2015. Capitalizing on her language skills is exactly what Wendy has done for herself. She's a nurse in Illinois, where the demand for healthcare workers who speak a language other than English grew by 74% in 2020. I feel like when you know more languages, you your values, like, what do they say? Vales como dos. So I think there is truth to that. I think a lot of doors will open up if you know Spanish. So that's important to me. Many first and second generation Latinos may struggle to raise bilingual children. Research shows that as immigrant connections weaken over time, parents tend to speak less Spanish to their children, resulting in a decline in language use. This is exactly what Wendy hopes to avoid. To me, it's very important for her to be able to communicate like with her family members, her grandparents, and not be like the no sabo kid. Wendy says she doesn't want her daughter to be a no sabo kid, a term commonly used to describe people who are Latino but do not speak Spanish, or rather do not speak it fluently. The idea behind this term is if someone were to come up to these individuals and speak Spanish to them, they would respond with no sabo, which is an incorrect way of saying no sé for I don't know. Many first and second generation Latinos actually consider no sabo kid to be a derogatory term used to deny someone of their own ethnic identity and to minimize their experiences as Latino people within the U.S. Those who dislike the term argue that Spanish is a colonizer language anyway because it was forced upon indigenous people in the Americas and therefore should not be used as a measure of Latinidad. Also, there are hundreds of indigenous languages like Guarani, Nahuatl, Quiche, Quechua, to name a few, that are still spoken by millions in Latin America. So to associate Latinidad with just speaking Spanish would erase the present-day experiences of indigenous people of the Americas. But some U.S. Latinos are reclaiming the term no sabo kid. They are redefining what the term means and owning their identity as separate from speaking the Spanish language, similar to how late Tejana singer Selena Quintanilla navigated Spanish-language interviews. Take, for instance, this interview for a TV show in Miami. The host Cristina is asking Selena about dress sizes, and Selena responds that designers usually call a size 16 a size 14. Casi todos los diseñadores ponen, si es un 16, lo ponen que es un 14. Un 14. 14, perdón. 14. Un 14. Así se habla. Ese es Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex, 14. Pero me entiendes, ¿verdad? 14. Instead of saying 14 for 14, Selena says 10 y 4, 10 and 4. The host teases her for it, saying she's so Tex-Mex. And Selena replies, but you understand me, right? And laughs. Wendy considers herself to be a no sabo kid, especially since she was born in the United States, whereas her husband was born in Honduras and lived there until he was 10. For Wendy, identifying as a no sabo kid is almost a sign of respect for those like her mother who might only know Spanish. 
I would feel weird. I would feel bad saying that I'm not a Nosabo kid because there's words that I don't know. I will talk to my mom and I will say, I will talk, so I talk Spanish to her, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, maybe, like I put in some English words, but I really, do, I think I know my Spanish pretty well, but that's why I call myself a Nosabo kid because I don't want to be the one that's like, oh, she thinks she's fluent, but she's not. I would say I'm 99% fluent. Wendy understands that as Jeliani gets older, she will be exposed to English at school. Adriana says that while it might take a while for a Spanish-speaking child to learn English, they actually tend to pick up the language fast. What the data kind of show is that kids, let's say, who are learning a home language like Spanish, once they enter school, they are very fast to pick up on the majority language, so on English, right? Because again... Language is for communication. And the minute kids enter school and realize that, you know, to communicate with the people around them, they need to speak in English, you know, they need to learn English, then they learn that very quickly when they're young. Jose agrees. English will always be there. It's the retention of Spanish that is their biggest worry. English will always be there. The way I see it, because I learned Spanish in Honduras and English here, is that English is easier to learn. And well, you're already here in the United States, where the majority of the time you talk in English, until Spanish is harder to learn. Adriana agrees with Jose. She's actually more worried about what happens to a child's Spanish after they enter an English-only environment like school. Sadly, you know, a lot of kids kind of don't keep up with their Spanish because there's so much pressure to learn English in schools, right? And that's kind of the message that they're getting. And so I'm actually less worried about, you know, whether kids will learn English because I know they will learn English because that's the majority language. And I, we sort of care more about understanding what can we do to support kids in continuing to learn Spanish. So if infants like Jeliani are able to adapt to environments with multiple languages, and they are able to learn English in a school setting, why has the myth that speaking two languages will confuse children and cause developmental delays persisted? While the United States has no official language, there have been several movements to promote English-only mandates across various states. Since the 1950s, it is widely documented that many Spanish speakers were oppressed both in and out of school for speaking the language. Older generations of Spanish speakers recall a time where they were physically beaten for speaking it at school, forcing them to let go of Spanish in an effort to avoid being a target of abuse. LA Times columnist Jean Guerrero spoke to LWC Studios podcast Latina to Latina about her own experiences growing up in Southern California during what she said was an era of intense anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican hysteria. This happened in the 1990s. As of 2021, it is reported that 43% of the Californian population speaks more than one language. Jean describes how she internalized English language supremacy from the educators at her private school. It was against the rules to speak Spanish. Like most of the students were Mexican-American and, and children of immigrants, and they wanted us to assimilate or, or, you know, learn English as quickly as possible. And so they said, like, it's just against the rules. And it was to the point where if, if we were caught speaking Spanish, we had to stay in detention and we had to write, I will not speak Spanish. I will not speak Spanish a hundred times. She goes on to say that she internalized speaking Spanish as bad 
and stopped speaking it altogether while developing a belief that English was superior. But despite the United States' effort to wash away the vast linguistic, cultural, and ethnic diversity and enforce the use of one language, more than 41 million people speak Spanish at home, according to the 2021 American Community Survey. All of this is deeply racialized, so it privileges... Jonathan Rosa is associate professor at Stanford University in the Graduate School of Education and the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Jonathan is a linguistic anthropologist who studies the overlap between racial and language categories. I'm interested in not just, you know, maintaining language intergenerationally and really challenging a, a monolingual hegemony in the United States, the imposition of the English language and the idea that you should leave languages other than English to the side in order to be incorporated into the United States. Jonathan is interested in uncovering how Spanish becomes stigmatized when spoken by a racialized Latino community. Unless you're wealthy and then you're allowed to attend dual language schools and your multilingualism is framed as making you economically competitive. And how it is championed when spoken by wealthy, typically white communities. And that's why the term that Wendy brought up earlier about being an Osabo kid is fascinating to him. Jonathan argues that in this scenario, even when Latinos speak Spanish, it is framed as incorrect. And when they speak English, it is framed as incorrect. And at what point do we start to connect the dots and, and recognize that for some populations, we just imagine them as being linguistically deficient altogether? This can have concrete, damaging effects on multilingual families. For instance, in getting access to needed health care. In one case written up by the Hetchinger Report, a nonprofit newsroom focused on education, a mother in Providence, Rhode Island, was concerned by her three-year-old daughter's struggle to speak. At that age, toddlers should start forming recognizable words and sentences, but the mother could not make out what her daughter was saying. The pediatrician dismissed her concerns, saying her daughter's speech delays were due to her household speaking both English and Spanish. A few years later, her daughter was diagnosed with autism and cognitive delays, but the family had missed a critical window of time in her development. Rhode Island, like many states, including Illinois, has what's often called a birth to three program. It's an early intervention service that provides medical, therapeutic, and educational support to families with infants who have a developmental disability or cognitive delay. The bias in the medical profession against bilingual households led to a misdiagnosis and shifted the blame on the mother for her everyday language practices. Jonathan argues, is this really about language or is language serving as a convenient rationalization for racism and, and for class stigmatization and, and, and class antagonism? Wendy and Jose's decision to pass down Spanish to Giuliani is all the more powerful when you realize how many forces and stigmas are pushing against it. Hey, Wendy. Hi. See? I came to visit the Paz family a month after my initial visit. Hi. Oh, my God, mamas. How are you? You remember me? Geliani is 10 months, and there's a few updates on her development. She's talking a lot. Well, not talking, but <laughs> babbling. We noticed the other day that she was saying, like, um, paya, 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 paya. Hondurans say vaya to mean go. Like, I'll put on the camera, like, oh, vaya, vaya al carro. Or, vaya, vamos para acá, venga, Yelena, like, things like that. So I noticed she was saying, like, vaya, vaya. 
So I repeat it when she says it, and then she continues to do it. And even though she doesn't know the meaning of it, she's basically learning to call for her parents now. She does it. She hasn't quite said mama yet, but she's at least learning mom's nickname. The family calls Wendy by her middle name, Jahaira. My nephews call me Yaya. So she does say Yaya, Yaya, Yaya. She's also starting to hit some other milestones at 10 months. She stands more than she can mm-hmm. walk. With just two months away from Jeliani's first birthday, the Bas family is already planning the cutest little party. So she likes oranges. She likes, she loves cuties. So that's going to be the theme. And of course, they are bringing in the staple Honduran party foods. Rice, chicken sandwiches, and if there's cake, then there has to be Coca-Cola or Pepsi. El pastel no se toma sin Coca-Cola yeah. o sin Pepsi. For the Paz family, this upcoming day of celebration is also a marker in their life as new parents. Como que desde que ella nació, ya mi pasado como que ella ya está ahí. It's hard to explain, but... Like she's a part of us that like you can't remember not being without her. So yeah. 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 I'm excited para su primer año. Y... Yeah. Walking. I'm like hoping she knows how to walk when for her birthday just so she could be, you know, walking around. And For now, the Paz family is preparing their birthday songs and eagerly awaiting the days Jeliani says her first real word but she's done so much work to get here already. It'll be the culmination of so much learning, adapting, and engaging by everyone in the family. One Hundred Latina Birthdays is an original production of LWC Studios. It is made possible by grants from the Healthy Communities Foundation, Woods Fund Chicago, the Field Foundation of Illinois, Pritzker Foundation, and the Chicago Foundation for Women. Mujeres Latinas en Acción is a series fiscal sponsor. This episode was reported by Andrea Flores. Juleika Lantigua is the show's creator and executive producer. Paulina Velasco is the editor. Anne Lim is associate producer. Fact-checking by Kate Gallagher. Mixing by Samia Bouzid. And mixing and sound design by Kojin Tashiro, who is LWC Studios' lead producer. Michelle Baker is our photo editor. Amanda De Jesus is our marketing assistant. Theme music is Labradoodle from Blue Dot Sessions. Cover art by Reina Noriega. Thanks to Roberto Flores for the voiceover. For more information, resources, photos, an annotated transcript of this episode, and a Spanish translation, visit 100latinabirthdays.com. That's the number 100 Latina birthdays. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at 100 Latina Birthdays. 100 Latina Birthdays is an open source podcast. We encourage you to use our episodes and supporting materials in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere they can make an impact. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>